So I don't think clean energy happens strictly through policy. I think it's a chemistry equation. It's policy, it's technology, it's financing mechanisms, and over time, it becomes the market. Hello, and welcome to the Colorado Energy Leaders Podcast. This is our first real episode, and with me, I have an energy legend, Governor Bill Ritter. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm really happy to be here and uh, to join you on your inaugural podcast. Yep. First first real episode. I am I, I'm actually incredibly excited to have the opportunity to meet with you. So since this is the first episode, I'll give a quick overview of how these podcasts are generally going to run. So I've thought a lot about how to construct an interview to go a little deeper on energy policy. And so I have this interview set up in basically three sections. The first section is an introductory section, basically to kind of introduce people to why they can relate to your background in energy policy. Yours in particular, how you grew up, and then moving on to the governorship is really unique in moving into an energy policy space, and I think it's incredible. So I'm, we're gonna talk a little bit about, about that in the introduction. The next section is one I've thought about a lot, and it's the challenge section. And so this section is designed to ask questions that aren't, um, aren't at all gotcha questions, aren't at all difficult questions, but are energy policy, constructing good policy is very hard. And so these questions are kind of trying to get at some of the honest challenges that people face when dealing with energy policy. Um, and then the last question is the future uh, and prediction questions, which are basically going to look at what you think the future of energy is. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm excited to hear your opinions on that. So firstly, you have an incredibly interesting background in where you came from. Some would say sort of eclectic. Um, you know, Jordan, I'm a Colorado native. I was one of 12 kids, <clears throat> raised on a farm. And I'm going to apologize to all of your listeners because I have a bit of a cold and a little bit of laryngitis. And I'll probably cough once or, once or twice during this interview. Um, so I was raised on a farm east of Aurora. Um, we didn't own a lot of ground. We only owned five acres. My grandma owned the five acres next to us, but we farmed um, up to a thousand acres. I think when we were farming the most acreage, dryland wheat farm, not a get rich quick scheme. My dad left us when I was probably about 13 years old. So then we were really on our own. I worked construction all the way through high school, as did almost all of my siblings who were brothers. My sisters also worked, but not necessarily construction. We put ourselves through school. So I put myself through CSU and then CU Law School. And if you'd asked me sort of at the beginning of law school what kind of a lawyer I was going to be, I would have probably bet you that I was going to be a labor lawyer because I'd been in the labor union while I worked through college and law school. But instead, I wound up being a prosecutor and a deputy DA. Did that for about five years, five and a half years. And uh, then my wife and I went and lived in Zambia for three years as Catholic missionaries. And so that was its own, like, very different experience, but a really good experience to sort of understand the developing world. And I wasn't paying attention in any of this time to real, to what I would call energy delivery issues or energy consumption issues. I knew when I didn't have power in sub-Saharan Africa, that it was a pretty tough day for me. But, but then I came back and I was an assistant U.S. attorney. I uh, went from there back to the DA's office. And then the governor appointed me to become the DA when my predecessor left. That's elected office, so really have to be part of the party system. I learned a lot about um, a lot about political parties and running for election as the DA, the Denver DA. Is, I was the Denver DA, I was a Democrat, and uh, I was term limited after 12 years. Now at this point in my life, I've not spent 
a lot of time thinking about uh, energy issues. I had done a variety of things that were really about environmental issues. I'd taken actually environmental law as an undergraduate course, then taken water law in law school and had paid attention to other kinds of environmental issues that were in the news and began paying attention to climate change. One of the great things about being a lawyer is that you learn how to learn. So I came out of the DA's office, I went into private practice, but I really decided I was gonna run for governor pretty early after I left the DA's office. So I filed my papers in May of 2005. The election was in November 2006, and I'd already begun this process, but I continued this process of just learning. Like what were the opportunities in Colorado and where were the risks? And it was really an analysis around opportunities and risks that formed my agenda as a candidate. And I wouldn't have thought that it would be a pillar of the agenda at the very beginning of it, but it became clear to me that the people of Colorado really cared about clean energy. It became clear to me as well that there was likely to be a transition that would happen. How quickly and how big that transition was was unknown to me and I would argue to everybody else but that there were some risks if we didn't do it. Risks that were environmental risks, climate change as a part of that, and maybe bigger than just even what you might consider environmental risks, but also risks to our economy. So I saw economic risks, air quality risks, climate change as a risk, and we had this opportunity to build out a clean energy economy that in some respects would answer part of those risks. And as a public official, at least in my life, Running for election, that's what I would look for. I look for ways to talk to people about what we, where we're at risk and not be a fear-based campaigner because I really reject fear-based campaigning. Like this will happen and it will be awful if you, but just say, listen, we have a real risk here. And you know what? We can manage that risk by focusing on these as opportunities. So we had, you know, we had healthcare, education, transportation, but I think one of the things we became known for as a candidate, um, and, and in spite of having very little background with that prior to, was developing this idea that we called the new energy economy. There was a lot in there, and there's a lot of really cool, really neat things that you brought up. I don't know if you'll necessarily agree, but for some reason it seems like, as I read your book, so I read your book, Powering Forward, and you, you made this, you described this very active choice you made to air a commercial of you standing in front of wind farms in rural Colorado. Yeah. And it seems like a very uh, deliberate choice in a lot of reasons. One of the things that has made me really excited about energy and energy policy, having access to clean, reliable, and affordable energy is kind of the underpinning of many of those other topics we just, you, you talked uh -huh. about, healthcare, um, jobs, and economy. And it seems like that, after you left the governorship, it seems like you had the opportunity to kind of do what you felt most passionate about. And you started the Center for the New Energy Economy. Uh -huh. And so I, I think that's pretty cool. I don't know if, if you agree with all those points, but yeah. yeah. So I do. Um, let's talk about that commercial because I think right now it's malpractice in Colorado not to be filmed in a, at a wind farm <laughs> if you're running for public office statewide. I had a campaign consultant who I was actually really close to who's a really good friend of mine. He had helped me a lot in the DA's race. But he was pretty conventional and you know he wanted me to film yet another commercial 
in a cafe, eating with elderly people, pretending to listen to their concerns and everything. And that's how people get elected in Colorado. Uh, you know, I didn't know, though, know that was a standard commercial, but I will look for that. Well, now. look for that commercial, because I, I saw it a couple times in this last cycle. And I said, no, uh, and, and partly my opponent was trying to find me as a big city prosecutor and plea bargain too often. And they were going to, there was also some issues around immigration that they were going to challenge me on. And I said, no, we're going to change the conversation because the people of Colorado, they don't really want to see another commercial of a politician eating in a diner in eastern Colorado with elderly people or even, you know, some fear-based campaign about people who are here illegally that got a plea bargain. What the people of Colorado really want to see is what their future is going to look like. And I didn't, maybe didn't say it in such an articulate way, but I actually changed consultants over this. And I hated the fact I had to because he was a good friend of mine. But I brought in a new set of consultants and, you know, for them it wasn't an IQ test, but they knew that uh, if I wanted to be filmed in front of a wind farm, we were going to do that. And it was odd. We never, the, if you looked at kind of the polling and that, we were a little bit ahead when that commercial first started to air about six weeks before the election. And we never trailed after that. And that commercial was our main, you know, our mainstay commercial. We did some other things as well. But it was, you know, the future of Colorado is building wind farms and wheat fields and making our research universities leader in renewable energy research. That was the tagline. And it kind of it touched all these bells, but it was one thing, one, you know, commercial in the wind farm. There it was not sort of multiple things going on. It's like, oh, this is our future. So, you know, the great thing about this is that that was 2006. We're 12 and a half years later as we do this podcast. And we've increased the amount of wind on the grid from that day to today by 18 to 20 fold. Yeah. We have 20 yes. times as much energy. And so, you know, it's not often that you can run a campaign, have some things that are part of the agenda and do have a wild success. I mean, that was what people would consider a wild success. I remember people coming to me during the campaign and saying, could you get behind 25% renewable energy by 2025 for XL Energy, our investor-owned utility. Yeah. XL is going to have 55 to 60% by 2025, well over double of what people thought was the highest ambition that we might achieve. I think it's important to note that there was a lot of different circumstances that allowed me to be in that position. The, the voters of Colorado had passed Amendment 37 in 2004 and already XL which had opposed Amendment 37 understood the power of renewable energy and really the demand for it and because we started so small small there were some ways for us to build out from that and you know XL was in favor of the 20% renewable standard in 2007 because they began to see even though they opposed the amendment in 2004 they were in favor of us going to 30% in 2010 when we did that and so we had some converts along the way, but elections tend to convert people sometimes. <laughs> um, yes, and we will definitely talk a little bit about renewables, but I do want to ask kind of one more introductory question. Sure. Um, because, so you were governor between 2007 and 2011. I would say that's just a little bit before many renewables hit market parity. So it, in probably in the early teens, 2011, 2015, you saw a lot of renewables become the cheapest energy option. But while you were there, um, that's definitely why you were, and it's very pertinent that you were the first person we interviewed because you definitely led the way on this. But besides just renewables, Colorado has become known as kind of the gold standard of fossil fuel extraction as well. 
you talk a little bit in your book about wise energy stewardship. I guess besides just the renewable standpoint, which is very important, also in terms of some of the other things you do with energy, what do you view as wise energy stewardship? Well, um, we are the tenth largest coal producing state. We're the, among the top five in oil and gas producing. Uh, when I became governor, there were no, I, I thought, a real inadequate set of rules to protect our public health and our public safety uh, from fracking and from directional drilling. So we overhauled the oil and gas rules, and you know we passed legislation that changed the makeup of the commission, and then we mm-hmm. passed a whole new set of rules through the regulatory commission. Now, Governor Hickenlooper, my successor, has in, on four different occasions improved upon that. Things that we couldn't quite get to because ours was the first big new yeah. overhaul. And uh, you know, industry folks or even you know some of the other players would say, that's just a bridge too far. You're gonna really hurt the economy. It turns out that um, we've been able to get all that in place now. There's still some real issues in Colorado about local control and there's still some real tension about what local governments can do to regulate extraction activities on the oil and gas front. But we still have the best set of rules in the country. And and some of that's that Governor Hickenlooper improved upon what we had done, but certainly it was that we laid the early base for overhauling and, and, and it needed to be done throughout the United States, but we were really the first state to do it in a big way. It also gave me the ability to look at you know, coal-fired generation and understand the NOx, the nitrogen oxide, the mm-hmm. sulfur dioxide, the mercury, um, all of the different components of that, and the CO2, and say, well, because we've done this overall, overhaul on the oil and gas rules, we can really transition a lot of coal to natural gas and be assured that we're doing something that's going to benefit the climate. It was also, by then, Coming apparent that there was a long supply chain of natural gas in this country and that the price was going to remain low for a long time. I think most people thought the price would be between five and six dollars, and ultimately that was the first price that Excel negotiated with Anadarko for the gas that was part of Clean Air, Clean Jobs. And in fact, uh, gas hasn't gotten to five dollars since then because it's hovered, you know, somewhere above and below three dollars in MCF. And so um, I think in many respects, uh, my team and I were sort of able to see around the corner. It's part of when yeah. you know people talk about vision, they think it's a straight line. A lot of times vision is trying to see around the corner to see things that aren't necessarily apparent right in front of you. And one of those things was the energy transition in this country and in the state was going to happen. It was a challenge in many respects because environmental communities were still concerned, and they are today about oil and gas extraction, concerned about whether it could be done in a responsible way. But at the same time, we were a state that had a heavy presence of coal. And then just finally, um, you know, one of the things that you talked about in one of your earlier questions was really workforce and economic development. It's tough to look at this and think, well, there are no losers. You know, when there's an energy transition, if you look at what's happened with coal-fired generation, not just in Colorado, but throughout the West, and what's going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years, coal-fired industries, the coal mining industry and coal-fired generation are going to be impacted in a pretty negative way about, about this transition. And so there's this other aspect to this conversation that's about workers and about employees and about communities and what's the fair thing to do in those communities. 
it's interesting for me as I watch all political campaigns now. Um, I try to watch advertisements from a broad range of candidates from a broad range of states. And it's interesting to watch political advertisements now, especially around clean energy, because a lot of them seem to pretend that there will be no casualties and there will be no, no industries that lose out. And by necessity, you know, you have to manage this tension between transition and workforce. And I think that's something I'm very interested in exploring of how you do. So with that, we'll go kind of jump into the challenge questions. I feel uh -huh. like that's a very good introduction of what you just sure. said to the challenge questions. And so the first thing I want to talk about uh, or kind of push on or ask about is in your book, Powering Forward, you actually spend like four whole pages on different definitions, different thought processes of what is sustainable. Um, I really like that you introduced those. I thought it was very interesting to see different people's views on that. So what are your views of what is a good definition or working definition of sustainability? Well, I... <clears throat> I think if you think about it in the broadest of terms, the broadest of terms to me, sustainability has to do with natural resources and human behavior. And the intersection of human behavior and natural resources and, and how can human behavior consume natural resources, and that's in, that includes land, air, water, plant life, um, I mean, you just name the variety of things out there, and how can we intersect with uh, the natural world in a way that doesn't deplete it. Now there are going to be, it's hard to imagine humans intersecting with the natural world where in some ways it's not changed and you'd like that change not to be harmful but if it is in fact change and if it is harmful it can't be so harmful or impactful that over time that natural resource goes away and you know you build a trail at a 12,000 foot peak or 14,000 foot peak in Colorado, it's gonna be signs and evidence of humans going there. But there's a way for humans to behave that respects that natural environment so that that trail can be there for a very, very, very long time and is sustainable over time. There are ways for us to consume water in the state of Colorado. Um, and, and we're a pretty arid state. We're a state with a uh, state where water flows out of this state and into other states, we have seven major basins, and all of those uh, flow out of Colorado and into other states, and, and, and in many cases, multiple states. And so we really have to protect water for ourselves and for other states. If we use our water in a way that we're going to deplete that resource over time and that other people downstream or downriver are going to have access to it, that's not a sustainable practice. So. Just you just kind of think about sustainability in terms of all those things. And, and just finally, I would say, if our transportation system is carbon loaded such that uh, we continue to put greenhouse gases in the air from the transportation system, we don't over time transition to something else and, and we're impacted in a negative way or people around the globe are impacted in a, way, a negative way, then it's just not sustainable. If, if uh, we can't figure out how to use land so that we you know, maintain force or maintain a carbon sink among the natural environment or even do all the right things by consuming plant food in a sustainable way. Um, that's how broadly I think about this is that the sustainability for a lot of people may just mean clean energy. It may mean just the built environment. It may mean, you know, just the transportation system or one kind of sector. Um, it, it's all of those things and it has to do with how we consume, how we produce, and how we look at our intersection 
with the um, natural environment. The last thing I'll say is the best thing I've ever written about, I've ever read about this is the encyclical that the Pope wrote. It's called Lerato Si, which is Latin for praise be. But people should actually take a look at that because they broaden the definition of sustainability to meaning economic systems. The sustainability also includes how or whether economic systems deliver equity to people. Not that everybody's equal, but it shouldn't be that there's human deprivation on one side of it and, and gross wealth on the other and a big chasm in between. There's some, some ideas around fairness and that sustainability and economic systems should go hand in hand as well. Thank you for that. And I appreciate that you brought in some of these external things. Specifically, a lot of the conversation is around climate change with renewable energy. But for Colorado, water resources, water is used to power thermal plants. And if we run out of water, that's a, a, an almost faster approaching deadline than some of the issues that we deal with climate change. And the, the encyclical from uh, the, the Catholic Church is a really interesting example of um, sustainability that deals with human dignity that I think is very that's, interesting to bring into the energy sources conversation. I think so, that's a great way to put it. Based upon this, uh, this definition that you hold of sustainability, what is the time frame that Colorado needs to transfer to a sustainable, clean, and renewable energy source, any of the three, all the three? Um, and I want to ask that in a very particular way because fossil fuels are finite. So at some point in future history, human will, humans will transfer off of them. Like just by the fact that we use them and they are a finite quantity, they will be gone. And so to me, the conversation isn't often about enough about timelines because every we will transfer off of fossil fuels eventually. But the time frame is where things get complicated. If you want to do it tomorrow, you can, but no one can drive to work. And so the, I, I just wanted to know what your timeline is for you think Colorado needs to do this by? Well, when we say fossil fuels, we have coal, oil, natural gas. When we say fossil fuels, we have coal, oil, natural gas. I'm trying to think if there are others besides that, but hydrocarbons. And, um, you know, I think coal's day um, is coming, coming pretty soon where we transition out of coal. We've looked at the coal-fired plants, but when I say we, people at my center and I, have um, actually staffed this around the country, to around the Western United States, then work with governors and legislators on this transition. 45% of the coal is planned to shut down, planned, it's in resource plans, in the next 10 years, maybe even a little bit less than that. We said that in 2018, it's now 2019. Um, and you look at the age of the plants, the age of the scrubbers, the cost of replacement, then the downward decline in the price of renewables and even in gas, um, coal's future is pretty dim. So I think the transition out of coal is probably a 10 to 20 year one in the West. And that's okay. not because I want to see it go away, it's just that I care a lot about carbon. And there's a lot that happens in coal communities where we should try and preserve the quality of life in those communities and preserve jobs in those communities because the people are hardworking people, they have a great ethic and they love Colorado a lot. The second part of that conversation, natural gas, so our energy transition um, has to be carbon-free somewhere between 2040 and 2050, I would say. And that's the transportation system, the built environment, the electricity delivery, industrial production, industrial manufacturing. We're going to have to be carbon-free. And so 
there's a lot more natural gas than, than a 20-year window. I mean, I think people who say, we don't know how long it will go, but it's probably 100 years at least, I think they're probably not wrong about that being the time frame. So natural gas has a pretty bright future if it can figure out how to be carbon-free. It's a hydrocarbon. And there are two things about that. When you burn natural gas in a turbine, that it may not burn as much, um, doesn't burn nearly as much nitrogen oxide or or sulfur dioxide, it's really uh, devoid of mercury in the emissions flow, but it's still a hydrocarbon, it's 50% of the carbon the coal is. And so you say, well, at least there's a climate benefit for now. That's true as long as you're capturing methane along the value chain. So that's the second part of the conversation where natural gas is concerned. In order for natural gas to be a part of a carbon-free world that I think we're gonna need to see and let's say it's 2040 to 2050, sometime in that time frame. then we're either gonna, we're gonna have to do a couple of things. We're gonna have to ensure that we are capturing methane along the value chain from the well bore to, where, to the end use. And the second part of that is we're gonna have to figure out how to capture and either store or utilize carbon coming off the emission stack when we're burning carbon for fuel determined. So that's called carbon capture and utilization or carbon capture and sequestration plus methane capture. You do all those things, then natural gas could become you know, a carbon-free fuel. I have a lot of friends in the environmental world that don't think this is possible, or at least don't think it's possible economically going forward. And that they're gonna, you know, that they're get natural gas is gonna get beat by the price of renewables, the price of renewables plus storage, the price of renewables, storage and energy conservation. And then, you know, some say the price for renewable storage, energy conservation, and some technology we don't know about now. Well, that technology could become carbon capture and sequestration or carbon capture and utilization. But its date is, it, we've got it like a 15 to 20 year window because there's a lag time when you develop the technology and make sure it's economical till the time you can deploy it. But they really have a 15 to 20 year window to have it fully figured out so they can be part of a carbon free economy. In this transition, so it sounds like basically coal is on its way out for mostly economic reasons, and we need to transition to a carbon-free future by 2040 or 2045 in, in, in your viewpoint. Um, what is the role of fossil fuel industries in this? Like, how do they participate? How do you get them as allies or work with them to implement this? So where the coal industry is concerned, that's a little more difficult for me to understand, and in part because there are already... I think they're already in a pretty serious financial mess. Um, Wyoming, our neighbor to the north, has, you know, it's the largest coal producing state in the nation. And now it's had four significant companies who have been through bankruptcy. So Peabody, Alpha, Arch, and now Westmoreland have all been through bankruptcy. And there's some real telltale signs that as an industry, it's going to have a pretty difficult time going forward. I do think the oil and gas industry has, you know, sort of a different, um, a different interest now in solving problems and a different ability. And I think what we're going to see, um, and this is driven in part by shareholders. I would argue that the shareholders for oil and gas company, you know, these big international companies, have a pretty broad reach. They have a pretty broad reach uh, in their shareholder community. And there's a big upward push among shareholders to ensure that oil and gas is involved in trying to solve for this carbon problem. And they're gonna require them to have climate plans. They're gonna require them to uh, report climate risks. 
And, you know, I think that the oil and gas industry is going to do something the coal industry should have done about 20 years ago, which was really devote uh, a lot of resources to figuring out how, how they could be carbon free and how they could over time sequester gas and, and you or utilize gas. And there's activities going on around the country that, that are happening that way. But I would argue you're going to see some of the biggest oil and gas companies. Um, Exxon Mobil is talking about this now. ConocoPhillips is talking about this now. And, you know, when I was governor, we already had some interest in this kind of activity from some pretty big gas companies, particularly, but oil and gas companies now that are internationally based are really doing this. They devote enough resources to this, they could solve this problem. And uh, so, in fact, I think it was last year, uh, Exxon invested heavily in renewables. I guess if you were advising them, would you suggest them to invest in renewables with the efforts of taking over or replacing their mining production? Or would you advise them to kind of invest in carbon capture or one of the two or both, I guess? What would be your kind of... You know, what's really interesting is the days of the private laboratories are kind of gone by the by. So all the people kind of a generation older than me, I'm 62, they remember so fondly Bell Labs. You saw all these fantastic scientists come out of Bell Labs. Now it's the National Lab System and the University Lab System. So if I were advising ExxonMobil, I'd say I, I would put my money on renewables, on storage to store renewables, on innovation in you know technological circles, so at the national labs or at the at these uh, you know university labs, and, and and partner with them, find ways to do these public-private partnerships so you can work together on it, and then finally I'd say you know go for carbon capture and sequestration, see if you can figure out a way to do this to make it economical or carbon capture and utilization, but understand you might get beat by some other technologies that are developed along the way that will come in and make it really impossible. The other, I think, threat to uh, the oil and gas industry is distributed energy. You know, there's a variety of solutions that are just smaller home kinds of solutions that could um, make it difficult uh, for oil and gas companies. Um, and finally, the transportation industry, the ability to build batteries and to build cheaper batteries has uh, allowed us to see sort of a takeoff in, in utility scale renewables plus storage, but the same thing's happening as in the automobile industry. And you know, 10 years ago, nobody was saying, well, that's gonna happen in the over the road heavy truck industry. Now everybody is saying, listen, we think that there's gonna be batteries that can power over the road 18 wheel vehicles, one megawatt batteries on all of our fleet, you know, that's gonna be moving up and down interstate highways. No one was predicting that a year ago. And so this is another reason why uh, ExxonMobil has, if they invest in carbon capture and sequestration, that's fine, that, that has like a role to play, but they should be thinking a lot about renewables and storage as well. So I kind of want to flip that question now just a little bit, because one of my, my favorite probably section in your book was actually a, book, a section, a chapter called No Time for Incrementalism. I guess for someone who agrees with your timeline on when we need to become carbon free, but disagrees with your belief about the role that fossil fuels would play in this, um, I, I see a lot of conversations happening by people who want to transition the energy grid very quickly that are kind of saying we don't need to include the oil companies, like just burn that establishment to the ground. They have invested so heavily for so long against us. Obviously, with this podcast, I don't, I don't really feel comfortable with that. 
What would you say to someone who agrees with the timeline that you think we need to transfer, but not necessarily with the role you think the oil industry or the gas industry plays in that transition? Um, here's one of the problems, and you know, in the United States, where we have the luxury of having this problem right now, and you know, there may be other places that are experiencing the impacts of climate change that would disagree, but utilities, if you talk to a utility executive, they say, listen, here's what I care about. I care about reliability for my customers, I care about affordability for my customers, and I care about sustainability. And I think we're fortunate to have moved sustainability into that mix over the last 10 years. And the question is, when does sustainability you know, become such a priority that they forget about affordability? They would argue never, that they're never gonna like do something that's gonna be so drastic that customers could no longer afford energy, whether it's clean energy or fossil fuel generated energy. And so I think we have the luxury of figuring this out in a timeline where we can have reliable, affordable energy and over time sustainable energy by reducing the amount of fossil fuel generation or greenhouse gases emitted from the portfolio. XL Energy is a pretty good example. So XL Energy is going to get 80% below their 2005 emissions number by 2030. So that's you know 20 years ahead of what people said we needed to do to get 80% emissions out of the air. And this is a major utility making that kind of an announcement. And I think if you said instead, we don't care about that goal, we're gonna push you to 100% renewable tomorrow. Excel could not tell you how they're gonna do that in an affordable way. They actually can tell you in Colorado how they're gonna to get to 60 or 65%, maybe even 70% and make it be affordable. So they not only don't see a big increase in, um, in customers' bills, but they actually see it either flat or less. This, this issue of affordability is a really important issue to people around the state, and it's a, po a political issue, but all this stuff, you know, you have to intersect policy with the political reality People get elected for office, people get turned out of office when they do things that impact customers of utilities in a negative way. So it's, <clears throat> for me, I think, again, we have um, some time where we can make that transition and do it in a way where people's energy is still reliable and still affordable. And that time frame, you know, for me is, uh, as I said, it's a 10 or 15 year window to get to a real big build out of renewables and then a 20-year window to sort of think about how we reduce emissions 80, 90%. And I think in Colorado, we have the ability to do that. You brought up the issue of affordability. And one of the things that I've become kind of obsessed with, kind of switching, switching gears, something that I've become obsessed with as I've thought about energy policy, clean energy, and reliable energy, is energy poverty. Um, and I, I tried to find, I read a report, and I tried to find it again so I could include it in the show notes, but it talked about energy poverty in Colorado. And I think the affordability is an issue that isn't necessarily talked about enough. Um, so according to the report, it was somewhere around, we estimate that energy poverty in Colorado is when someone spends roughly 5% of their income on energy for their household, whether it be heating or electric or transportation fuel costs. And in Colorado, we have roughly 17% of the households that do that. Um, I would love to be able to cite that. I, I, 
read the report a couple months back and couldn't find it again. Do you keep track of those numbers that set up the new energy fund? Not that specific number. We think a lot about energy equity, mm-hmm. you know, like not building out a clean energy system on the backs of people who are lower income uh, or people who are even middle low. Um, so, you know, first of all, there's federal and state programs designed for those people. So the LEAP program and uh, LIHEAP, I think, is the state version. There's a federal version and a state version. And really, um, for XL customers, there should be the ability to ensure people don't go into energy poverty. If you're outside the regulated system, there's still state dollars and federal dollars available for customers who are customers of co-ops or municipal um, utilities or so forth. Uh, what it tells me, if it's 70% of the people, um, you know, that maybe we're not reaching them all, but it was a big part of how we thought about energy policy. We really did not want to make, you know, renewable energy particularly so expensive that it was um, impossible for people to continue to have pay their electric bill and do all the other things they needed to do, pay their food bill, their pharmaceutical bill, those kinds of things. We actually, with our renewable energy standards, we put safeguards in place. So we allowed um, the utilities to charge 2% from all of their customers over and above what the cost of energy was and take that and set it aside in a, in a category called RISA and, and use that RISA to ensure that renewable energy was not too expensive for its customers as they built it out. Interestingly now, renewables are on parity with gas and even below the cost of coal. And so that RISA has been used for a variety of things, not the least of which for XL Energy to build out this massive Colorado energy plan, which is going to be a bunch of new renewables, in which they can demonstrate will be priced below the levelized cost of coal-fired energy in a pretty significant way. Um, I had never heard of that policy. That's really interesting, and um, I definitely am going to read up on that a little more because that's very interesting. But I guess um, talking a little bit more about energy poverty, if if you were to ask someone, what is one state that has been incredibly aggressive on clean energy? Uh, there have been several, but one of the ones that people talk about most is California. Sure. And for Calif- good reason. Yeah, it it has some um, some very interesting policies in place to try to move to clean energy. Um, but one of the things that people could cite or is interesting about California is as they've done this transition, or maybe there are lots of variables involved, their price per kilowatt hour of electricity is actually one of the highest in the nations. There's lots of variables that they do to try and keep people's bills low, so energy efficiency programs and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I guess, do you have any comments on either just California or energy poverty in general that you would do maybe differently in Colorado? to prevent something like that or a situation where you had more people struggling to pay their energy bills? Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of reasons that energy prices are inflated in California that have to do with California and California policy. People in Colorado are, are situated, unfortunately, in many respects, um, in a different business environment. And so there's just, we, we haven't experienced the kind of energy pricing inflation. Um, and we put all these policies in place, like I'm saying, that really were about trying to um, keep the cost of new renewables down. As we built it out to scale, the cost came down, the, the, the decline curve in a very sort of economics 101 type of way. You build it out to scale and the price, the price of, of building that energy is reduced. So I think we've done a good job of that, but um, you know, I think there's still uh, more to do, more to look at. We always 
looked at energy efficiency as one of the best ways to reduce emissions, one of the most cost-effective ways. And so I think there's still a variety of programs coming out of the state energy office that was about that. I just had the benefit of being involved in the Polis administration's transition. And the person that he picked as his energy director comes from an organization. He's done a lot of things in the past. He's been a mayor, a city councilman, a county commissioner, but he was currently working for, presently before the governor chose him, he was working for SWEEP, Southwest Energy Efficiency Project. And so I think he appreciates that energy efficiency has to be a part of ensuring we have low cost energy going forward. So that is kind of the end of the challenge questions. You made it, you did great. Uh, thank you so much Thanks. for those answers. Um, so now I wanted to move to the last section, which is really meant to be kind of uh, fun. So firstly, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. You are obviously started the Center for the New Energy Economy. And so I use some of the tools that the Center for the New Energy Economy produces almost weekly. Um, and so I guess, what are you working on now? And what is the Center for the New Energy Economy doing? And what are some of the things we can look forward to, uh, those of us who are? really nerdy about energy policy and excited to see what you... So we just had our eighth anniversary on February the 1st. You know, when I came to Colorado State University to found the center, it was really because I thought states were a pretty good place to do energy policy, that not much was happening at the federal level. And so what we've seen is the federal government not do much, uh, certainly not through Congress. They've done some things with tax credits on, you know, for wind and solar, <clears throat> but not much besides that. Uh, the Obama administration had some regulatory things that they tried to do to push clean energy, but clearly the action, even during the Obama administration, was where the states are. And there are a lot of states, interestingly, with Republican and Democratic governors who were really moving the needle on energy policy. And so now we have a federal government that's actually hostile toward energy policy and, and you know doing a lot of things to roll back the kinds of Obama um, rule makings that were about developing a clean energy agenda. So now it's even more incumbent upon the states and, and we find ourselves like we didn't design it eight years ago that we would be in the middle of all this. You know, We thought it would be a really good thing to do. We find ourselves in the middle of the biggest conversations in America about how to move forward on the clean energy agenda at the state level. And there's a whole new crop of governors who have been elected, there's a new crop of legislators. And so we'll continue to do our work convening governors and utilities and utility commissioners and try and help them plan both as a state and regionally about how they make the transition to clean energy. We run a national clean energy legislators academy. Again, Republican and Democrats alike where we bring them in and we have a variety of conversations over two and a half days about things they need to do to create a clean energy agenda through policy. So I don't think clean energy happens strictly through policy. I think it's a chemistry equation. It's policy, it's technology, it's financing mechanisms, and over time, it becomes the market. But policy can be a lever that pushes, it can be a lever that pulls, and so we just kind of focus on that part of it. And, uh, and we are in the middle of it now, both with the things we're doing with governors and their offices, but also the things that we're doing with legislators around the country. We as you probably know we track every piece of legislation that's introduced in a state house in America all the way out to where it becomes law or dies on the vine. We also have done um, gap analysis in all 50 states of what states have done the most on clean energy, what states have done the least. And so that's spot for clean energy, the state policy opportunity tracker, spotforcleanenergy.org. 
Yeah, and I love looking at your tools because uh, the Center for the New Energy Economy does do a great job in tracking all of it, and I love reading through the stuff that you produce here. So that is a, well, thank you, a big thing that you do. Um, so I guess with your knowledge of the fact that you, you track everything and you see kind of everything that's going on at the state level, I think there's a lot of stuff going on at the state level that's very exciting. In your opinion, if you could pick one thing that you think is kind of the next big thing in either energy policy or energy technology that is just kind of coming down the pipeline and, and you're just really excited to see what happens with, what would that, what would that be? It would be the transportation industry. And partly it goes back to how I view things through the lens, the dual lenses of opportunity and risk. Um, we have a really significant transportation sector in America. Um, I think that the need to transition out of carbon vehicles, about out of the internal combustion in, engine, is going to drive the ingenuity and the innovation that will provide the opportunity to recreate the economy around the transportation industry. I'm 62 years old. I hope to live to see this, but I think that we're going to see a complete revamping. I think it's going to happen a lot more quickly than people are predicting today. I mean, nobody would have thought that we'd get to 55% renewables for XL Energy by 2025. I think there's going to be discussions in 15 years that are sort of like that where people are going to say, no one thought it would happen this quickly, and I hope it does. So just a couple of quick kind of rapid fire questions, uh, mostly because at the end of this year, I'd like to be able to take some data points from all of the people that I've talked to. Um, so by the year 2030, what percentage of the grid do you think will be uh, clean energy and uh, renewable energy? Well, um, clean and renewable, so a mix of clean and renewable. I'd say 80% of the grid is going to be clean and renewable. We'll have figured out something on the way of uh, you know, carbon capture and sequestration with natural gas. There's a fair amount of hydro. You know, in Colorado, we don't define hydro as renewable. Um, when we did our renewable portfolio standard, they do in other places. So we already have 70% hydro, and um, we, I think, are going to have a lot more renewables and we're going to get to a place where clean and renewable will amount to somewhere around 80% by 2030. So yeah, I apologize. I actually did want to highlight the, the definitional difference because a lot of people are having discussions. Um, one of the biggest discussions right now in, in DC is the Green New Deal and it makes a very distinct difference between clean and renewable. So I guess what percentage of the grid do you think will be clean and what percentage of the grid do you think will be renewable, assuming that all renewables are clean but maybe not all clean is renewable? So I'd say, um, again, 80% is probably going to be clean. Um, I would say 55 to 60% of that in Colorado will be renewable. And then my final question that I like to ask to kind of bring it all back, um, what's something that you turn on the news or look at or read that gives you a lot of hope? And that could be an energy policy or kind of just in the news more broadly. Um, I love energy policy, but I love asking people what, what they look at on a maybe daily or weekly basis that gives them hope for kind of the future. I get a lot of hope from reading news wires that report about activities within individual states. I go back to what I said before that, you know, this is states are where the action are, but action is. Um, if you look at things happening at the state level across the United States, there's a lot happening in this country that we can be really proud of where we're going to see big emissions reduction. It's not going to be a product at federal level. So my hope comes, and this could be a bias as a former governor, my hope comes from what governors and legislators have figured out they need to do to solve the problem of climate change and to solve a broader set of problems around environmental issues. 
Bill Ritter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Uh, if you want to uh, reach out to either of us on Twitter, you can find Bill Ritter at Bill Ritter Jr. on Twitter. Um, no periods or spaces. And you can find me at Colorado Roo, spelled R-U-X. And thank you so much for listening. Always stay curious.